with you and to just be encouraged by your presence and also uh, thank you for your generosity as well. I was born in Glasgow uh, in Scotland. I was once a wee bairn with a very strong Scottish accent. And um, when I was at school, the ladies in the canteen, they would politely fight with each other uh, just to uh, serve my brother and myself. They just wanted to hear these little laddies speak. Um, I'm a Scot. I I'm proud of being a Scot. And um, I'm the real deal as far as I'm concerned. But about 10 years ago, there was a rumour that started to circulate in our wider family that we actually had Italian blood. Um, I was horrified. Sorry, I'm a Scot. Uh, if you're Italian, I apologise to you this morning uh, for that. Earlier this year, I had a significant birthday, and my family decided to give me one of those DNA tests. You know, you spit into the test tube, and because I wanted to know, am I have I got Italian blood or am I the real deal? And the results came back, and I'm just an ordinary garden variety Scot. That's all I am, with a bit of Irish blood thrown in as well. But then I thought. That's my DNA. That's who I am. But what about us as a church? What's our DNA? Why has God put us here? What's our function? What's our purpose in the world? And that's, that's what I want us to explore this morning, starting first of all here with Exodus chapter 19, um, where Moses and Israel found themselves at the foot of Mount Sinai. Uh, try and put yourself here on the page. Uh, three months earlier, you were in Egypt. Then one night, God suddenly sent that plague, strike down the firstborn, and you suddenly, you leave the land of Egypt, your neighbours are giving you silver and gold. That was three months ago, but now here you are. You're at the foot of Mount Sinai. There's thunder and there's smoke and there's lightning and the, 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 the ground is quaking and so on. And Moses goes up the mountain and he's coming back with a message from God. And this is what we read here. That, that, that God tells the people here. He says in verse 4, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Why did God rescue Israel from Egypt? Yes, he saw her oppression... But why did he do that? Why didn't he just say, right, I've rescued you. I put you in this new land, the promised land. There you are. Have a nice life. See you later. Why didn't God do that? It was because God had a special purpose for her. And it was this. To be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. His treasure possession. Nothing special about Israel that made her stand out. But that was the distinctive role that he gave her in the world. God is thinking globally when he's thinking about Israel and what he's doing with her. He set her apart with a special purpose, to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, so that the whole world might be attracted to him. Think back to Abraham and think to the way in which God called Abraham. And what did he say to him? He said, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So God's not working in this small, tiny canvas. He's working here with the whole world. Israel exists to be a blessing to the world as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So question, why did God call Israel to himself? Answer, 
to be the light in the midst of the nations. Question, how will she do that? By being different. She won't work on the seventh day. She won't cheat each, each member of Israel when it comes to weights and balances and transactions. She'll care for the, the widow and the, and the poor and the oppressed and so on. She'll uphold the Lord as, as the number one thing in her national life. She'll treasure him. Israel was meant to be a modern nation. The nations are meant to look at Israel and see that she is different. Vastly different. So did Israel have a mission? No and yes. No, she didn't go around running you know, Judaism explained courses or two ways to sacrifice booklets or anything like that. So she didn't have a mission in the terms of what we think about mission today. But yes, she did have a mission in that she was meant to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation so that the whole world could see that there is a true and living God. You see, the nations were meant to come to Israel and say, why are you different? What, what makes you so distinctive out of all the countries in the world? And they were meant to say, it's because we follow the Lord who made heaven and earth. That's what makes us different. And we see some of that happening sometimes throughout the Old Testament. Think of the Queen of Sheba coming to King Solomon and it just took her breath away when she saw all that God had done. Think of Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. We might think, well, yeah, fair enough, it's a, it's a nice prayer to pray. We can pray the same prayer here as well. But then the psalm goes on to say, so that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. Again, it's God working with the canvas of all of humanity. He wants people everywhere to know of his greatness. But you know the sad and tragic story. It's a tragedy. Because Israel knew the true and living God. And what did she do? She swapped the living God for Kmart imitation gods, the things that don't last. She had the real deal. And she started to go after the, the gods of stone and wood. And she abandoned the true and living God. She could either be a light to the nations or let the nations seduce her. And she chose instead to be seduced. So what did God do? Well, it was for the sake of his name that he acted. And this is what he did. He sent her to exile. But I withheld my hand, and for the sake of my name, I did what would keep it from being profaned in the eyes of the nations and whose sight I had brought them out of, out of Egypt. So God sent Israel into exile because he couldn't stand to have his name sullied by the way, in which the, the way in which Israel was going off and chasing after the other gods instead of just being like following the true and living God. She'd given up her true allegiance to God. You see, the tragedy for Israel is this. She became just like her surrounding culture. So if the nations came to Israel, they'd say, well, what's it different about you? You're just like us. Yeah, you worship the Lord, but you also worship the same gods that we worship. So there was no difference really in the end between Israel and the nations. She wasn't the light anymore. So what hope is there? Uh, throughout the Old Testament, 
God keeps running advertisements. He keeps reminding Israel that one day, the day is coming when there were Gentiles who would come and believe in him. So look at what God says here to Jesus, his servant, is going to come one day. If this will go forward, there you go. I'll also make your light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And what does Jesus say when he starts his ministry? I am the light of the world. So that prophecy back there in Isaiah is finding fulfilment in Jesus. Jesus, Israel was called to be the true light. She fails. Jesus comes. He's the true light. He's the one that, that, that comes and shows people that there is a true and living God. And he brings us to a world that's trapped in darkness. But how do we know this will happen? How do we, how do we know that this will happen? We're told in Luke, people will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. And again, this is God working with this broad canvas, the whole world, all of humanity, wanting them to one day come and to know him. And here it's talking about us. It's talking about Gentile believers. You know, from Brisbane and Townsville and Sudan and Eritrea and Somalia and Khartoum and Baghdad. It's talking about the fact that one day God is going to gather the people that he's calling to himself together to come and to worship him in worship. You see, every Sunday morning when we gather, one of the things that we're doing is actually having a dress rehearsal. It's a dress rehearsal for that great and final day when we'll be gathered around God's throne together to worship him from many, many different nations. Some of you may know that this week there was a conference in Jerusalem, GAFCON, Global Anglican Futures Conference. Um, you may not know what's been happening in the Anglican Church in, worldwide in the last 10 years. There's been a bunch of Anglicans that have said that they want to support same-sex marriage and an unbiblical way of thinking about human sexuality. They're in the minority, but they've also been the power brokers for many years. Finally, the majority has said, we've had enough. And they got together in Jerusalem this week and we said, this is it. We are 80% of the world's Anglicans and we want to follow the Bible, not our culture. Now, the thrilling thing to see about that is that... The breadth of the nationalities that were there, they, they weren't white old fellows like me. No, they were people primarily from Africa. Here's the interesting thing. Europe was once the nation or the, the, the continent that sent missionaries throughout the world. But now you've got the, the, the daughter church in Africa telling the mother church, go back to the Bible. It's been a terrific movement of God in seeing that happen. And just thrilling to see the nations of Africa coming together and saying to the white part of the church, wake up, read your Bible and get back to what it says. So what does this all mean for us? Well, this is what we read in 1 Peter chapter, chapter 2 and we read this morning. Uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, Peter is writing to the uh, church in modern day Turkey and he says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And immediately you think Mount Sinai. 
the words that God gave to Israel. They're being applied here to us. This is, this is staggering. God now calls you and I a royal priesthood and a holy nation. This is who we are. This is our DNA. We're to declare to the world that Jesus Christ is Lord. You see, in the Old Testament, the idea was this. It was that the nations would come to Israel and the nations would say, what's so different about you? But now, instead of come, it's go. Where to go to our surrounding communities? Some of us are to go to the ends of the earth and, and people are to say to us, what, what makes you Southside so different? It's because we worship the true and living God who made the heavens and the earth. You see, God will call some of us to go and be missionaries overseas, some, but he calls all of us to serve here in that great task of making the name of Jesus known everywhere. Uh, from time to time, I talk to people um, who are at Bible college or other ministers, and I say, have you ever thought about serving overseas? And they say, oh, no, 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 that, that the need here is too great. Uh, the need in Australia is great. But there are parts of the world overseas where you have one full-time Christian worker per one million people. Per one million. You've got a university not too far from here. I imagine it's like most Australian universities. You've probably got maybe a half-time or a full-time staff worker on the campus. Uh, in Japan, that's one full-time staff worker for 45 universities. You can see the, the, the contrast there. Who will tell the people of Brisbane about Jesus? It's meant to be us. Who will tell the people overseas about Jesus? It, it's meant to be some of us. Listen to what a friend of mine once wrote on her application form uh, when she wanted to, be, to serve as a missionary. Uh, God has challenged me through sermons, books and conversations with my husband about what I'm willing to risk in his name. Uh, since moving to Sydney, we've been overwhelmed by the acceptance and even expectation of many Christians that we should make ourselves as comfortable as possible in this life. I see in many Christians a desire which God is also challenging in me to build bigger barns and bigger barns and create heaven on earth. And God is asking me if I'm willing to risk everything, material, physical, emotional, for the sake of his name and the sake of others who don't have the same sort of physical and spiritual resources that we have in Sydney. One of the greatest dangers we face is comfort. We live in an incredibly comfortable land. I, I go overseas sometimes to the developing world. I come back and I say to my family, we are millionaires. We live in paradise. And it's very easy to let that just suck us in so that we become like Israel of old and we follow the idols of our culture, the idols of comfort and, and security. And we start to lose that distinctive edge so that people can't see that we're different anymore. And it's very easy, isn't it, to default, to, to adopt the default position of our culture. But what does Peter say to us here? But you, you're different. But you're a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood and a holy nation, a people belonging to God. And what's our purpose? To declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. This is who we are. This is embedded in our DNA. And, and we're to live it out, friends. And it's a marvellous privilege. It's through us that the world will be blessed in hearing about Jesus. How can you get involved? Three quick ways. First of all, prayer. 
that might not seem like a very spectacular way to be involved, but it is. I don't understand how it works, but God takes our prayers and he uses them to achieve his purposes. So pray. Pray for local mission. Pray for overseas mission. You know, adopt a missionary, adopt a mission agency, a society. Get their prayer news and whatever you do, pray. Prayer is vital for, for mission. Uh, giving. I know that uh, often people in my sort of role, we talk a lot about money. That's because overseas cross-cultural work, it's not cheap. Uh, every time someone comes to me and says, I, want, I feel God leading me to go and serve in Japan, I sort of groan inwardly. You know it costs $120,000 to $140,000 a year to send a family to Japan. Uh, Tim Keller says, if the affluent Western church can't afford to send missionaries to Japan, who can? Sometimes missionaries, they face some pretty tough circumstances. But one of the toughest things they have to do is go and speak in churches and ask them to support them financially. The thing is this, they're not asking for money for themselves. No. They're asking for money for the ministry they're involved in so people can hear about Jesus. And yet so often they struggle with that and they, they, they feel guilty, but they're just trying to do what we're trying to do here. And that's to reach out to the people around them where God has placed them. And when you give, don't just think, simply think of giving. It's an investment. You're investing in the lives of the people who will hear about Jesus, who will one day be standing around his throne on that great and final day. And it will be a thrill, I think, to be able to look at somebody there and think, whoa, God used the gifts that I gave so that that person could hear about the Lord Jesus Christ. That, I think, will be an awesome privilege to worship together with people like that. Uh, the third way you can get involved um, it may be serving yourselves overseas. Let me give you some quick statistics. There are 7,000 languages in the world. Uh, 650 have a completed Bible. And at present, there are about 2,500 Bible translation projects uh, going on. That leaves 3,850 languages without a Bible. You can see the need there. I know lots of Bible translators and they're just very ordinary people, just like you. But the one thing that makes them different is that they have a passion to see people have the Bible in their mother tongue. And I'm jealous of Bible translators. After they die, if Jesus shouldn't first return, their legacy lives on as people read about God and the Lord Jesus. Perhaps God's calling some of you to serve in that way. Uh, maybe teaching. Uh, what do missionaries do? They go to the field, they, uh, they learn the language for three years, and for the next six, uh, six to ten years, they then use the language and the relationships they have. But then when they reach about the ten-year mark, they have to come home for the education of their children so they can go to high school. What's a better strategy? To get teachers and retired teachers to go to capital cities and teach in mission schools. It makes it much easier, and those families can stay on the field longer. Another need... Church planning, as I told you, Japan is it's one of the most technologically advanced societies in the world, but it's often been called the relationless culture. It's got huge, huge social problems. A third of Japanese people live on their own. It's a very lonely culture. But it's also a country where people desperately need to know about Jesus. It's a country where some people even think it was Santa Claus that was crucified on the cross. 
What will change all that? It's the gospel. Uh, across in Korea, across the peninsula, there's uh, 30% of people who call themselves uh, followers of Christ. In Japan, it's something like 0.5%. Church planning in Japan is tough. Maybe God is calling you to serve in this way as well. Sometimes we look at the state of the Australian church and we think that somehow it's going backwards. But nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, yes, the church in Australia and Britain and parts of America, it's starting to really struggle. But there are other parts of the world where the doors aren't just open for the gospel, the doors are actually off their hinges, if you'd like to use that, that sort of analogy. In, in Muslim countries, in China, in Africa, before 9-11, it's estimated there were 17 known Christians in Afghanistan. Today, it's thought that around 10,000 believers. 1979, they estimate there are about 500 known believers in Iran. Today, we think it's around about 1 million. Now, the newspapers won't tell you this sort of stuff. Uh, they won't report this. It's not news for them. But it's what God is doing around the world. You see, what do we do? We go as Christ's ambassadors, whether it be here in our own backyard or whether it be overseas. And we live in a country, Australia, that has, that has huge needs. I, I mean, I grew up here and I just, I just see a loss of hope in our society. What can give people hope? It's only the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, you are the light of the world. And when he uses the word you there, it's an Australian word. It's use. It's plural. You are the light of the world. You might think to yourself, me, the light of the world? But that's what God has made us to be. Together, the light of the world. In Matthew 28, Jesus utters those well-known words, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. And when Jesus used the word nations there, he's not talking about those lines in a map. He's talking about ethnia. That's the Greek word there, the word that we get ethnic from. All ethnia, all People groups. You see, many countries in the world today, they're made up of people groups within the country map, so to speak. So in South Sudan, there are five people groups. There's the Dinka, there's the Nuer, there's the Izande, and the Shaluk, and the Bari. There are 16,000 people groups in the world. And out of those 16,000, it's thought that 6,500 have not been reached with the gospel. That's billions of people that haven't heard about Jesus. That's billions of people. Where does mission happen? Mission happens wherever there are Christians, whether it be here or in a country overseas. The word missionary is a Latin word that means sent. And we're, we're all sent. Now, that doesn't mean that we'll all be out in the street tomorrow telling people about Jesus. Some of us, it's just not our makeup and our personality. For others, it is. But what does it mean is that we work together so that people can hear about Jesus. So when we do things together as a church, we need to, we're doing it using our gifts. Whether it's a men's night or a ladies' coffee and dessert evening or a kids' club, you need people with gifts of administration. You need people to do the, the upfront talking. You need people to cook. You need people to clean and do all those other things you don't see in the background that are necessary. We use all of our gifts together for the common purpose of seeing people hear about Jesus and coming to faith in him. We, we do it together. 
When an overseas missionary goes to a new country, uh, they usually they spend the first three years learning the language. But while they're doing that, they're, they're looking at the country and its culture and the way that it functions and, and operates. And they think intentionally, how am I going to reach that particular people? Why can't we do that here? What's the difference between us and an overseas missionary? The vast difference usually is they think intentionally. We live here. We get too comfortable, too relaxed. But we know the culture. We know the language. How would things be different if we thought intentionally, like a missionary, in how we reach people in our own backyard? Now, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. But I'm trying to remind you of the marvellous opportunities that we have as the people of God to proclaim Christ here in Australia. I find it very easy to just, recruit, just retreat into my own comfortable security and ways of doing things. But we need to think intentionally about what we do. So what opportunities are here around you, here? Uh, you've got a university nearby. So take uh, student ministry, for example. Uh, do you know that there are in Australia at the moment 534,000 international students. That's a staggering figure. 534,000. That's 6% of the world's international student population. Here are some rough numbers for Australia. There are at the moment, studying Australia, about 165,000 students from mainland China. India. 64,000 Indians studying here. Or take Bangladesh, for example. Bangladesh is the, the largest unreached country in the undeveloped world. Okay? There are about 6,500 Bangladeshis studying here in Australia. And they can get to hear about Jesus. Take Saudi Arabia. It's very hard to reach a person with the gospel within Saudi Arabia. But there are 5,000 Saudis studying in Australia at the moment. What an opportunity! And it's estimated that by 2025, the number of international students will just double across the world. What I'm saying is there are opportunities just there in that particular situation. If missionaries from previous generations could see the opportunities that we have here in our own backyard today, they would be staggered. And it's not just students. Think about those that have come as permanent residents. Australia is currently experiencing massive immigration and it's only in generations to come that we'll be able to look back and see what God has been doing in those waves of, of, of uh, people coming to Australia. Uh, the home church I go to in, in Sydney, it's, um, it's in a Chinese area. I've had people walk up to me at morning tea and say something like this. Hi, my name is Ben. I've been in Australia for three days. Can you please teach me about Jesus in English? Uh, yeah, we've actually had a class that starts in 10 minutes. We run our ESL, English for Life stuff, on a Sunday morning so people can experience the community as well as just learn about uh, English and learn about Jesus. See, so who are we? We're a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is our DNA. We want others to know about the Lord Jesus Christ. But how can we be content when people don't know about him? In 1865, Hudson Taylor, uh, he was a missionary to China. He returned home to Brighton, to England. Um, he was broken emotionally and physically. Um, he went to church one Sunday morning in 1865 at Brighton in a Baptist church. A thousand people there. But he walked out of church before it was over. And this is what he wrote in his diary. 
unable to bear the sight of a congregation of a thousand or more Christian people rejoicing in their own security, while millions were perishing from lack of knowledge. I wandered out on the sands alone in great spiritual agony, and there the Lord conquered my unbelief, and I surrendered myself to God for his service. There and then I asked him for 24 fellow workers. And not long after that, he began the China Inland Mission. Oh, meth today. But did you catch what upset him? A thousand or more Christian people rejoicing in their own security while millions are perishing from lack of knowledge. He's got a point. Every Sunday we gather, other churches gather, and we praise God that's the right thing to do. But a part of us should be a little bit uncomfortable. We should be thinking about the people who are not here, the people who are outside of these walls, because it's very easy to forget that there are people in Australia right now that are driving by right now that are going to hell because they don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. So we've got to be careful that we don't become too content and too comfortable. And if God willing, this building should be filled four times over on a Sunday, don't be content then. There are still more to reach. We've got to have that vision. We want to reach Australia and the whole world. So friends, mission is costly. Sometimes engaging in mission is, is very costly and means taking risks. What is the symbol of Christianity? It's not a cushion. It's a cross, isn't it? It's a cross. And sometimes that means that we'll be uncomfortable. Sometimes it even means some of our Christian friends will say, hey, you're taking following Jesus a bit too seriously. Sort of, you know, don't be so enthusiastic. Calm down. But how can you know Jesus and not want to tell people about him. You see, what, what's God doing right now? In the last 30 minutes, as we've been thinking about these things, God has led hundreds of people across the world to a living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for the first time. You know, people in Senegal and Vietnam and, and Kazakhstan, and, and that's just in the last 30 minutes. God is calling people to himself to come to know him and to worship him and give him the glory. Where's it all leading? In Revelation chapter 5, we are ushered into the throne room of heaven. And there's a scroll. It can't be opened. And John weeps because no one can be found that can open the scroll. But then the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, he steps forward. He opens the scroll and that means that the will of God can now be carried out. And this song is sung in verses 9 and 10. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchase for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Hear those words? Kingdom of priests? And immediately we think of Exodus 19 and 1 Peter chapter 2. And who are the people around this throne? It's us. It's the whole church from every tribe and language and nation. Gathered together. This will be the very first time that the whole church has been gathered together from across the ages and worshipping God. And why are they there? Because they've been called by Christ to serve him as a kingdom and priests forever. So that's what mission is about. It's an exciting picture. And if we truly understand what's, what's happening here, how can we not want to be involved in our own backyard and also overseas if that's where, where God is calling you? But where's mission on your agenda? 
Now, I don't know you, so I can say all these things. Where's mission on your agenda? Is it at the top of your agenda as a church? I'm thinking local mission at this point. Or is it somewhere further down? I, I speak in many churches. And for many churches, mission is somewhere down here when it should be there. Some churches think, oh, we'll, we'll do it when we get around to it one day. But you're the church. This is our DNA. This is who we are to be. We are put here for one of, the, one of our purposes is to tell people about the Lord Jesus Christ. Because this is what God is doing. And how can we not want to be involved? Through praying, through giving, and maybe even going at ourselves. This is God's mission. What's God calling you to do? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you and we praise you for what you are doing in this world. We confess, Lord God, that we are weak. That so often we sin. So often we, we fail to see what you're doing. Open our eyes, we ask, as we read your word and continue to help us to be excited by what you're doing to honour your great name. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we have been reminded that there are people around the world who are desperate for Bible.